Artes, namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight, we're coming close to the Catholic Easter day, and uh, it is even more appropriate than averagely that we talk about Jesus, we talk about his message, the meanings there. I was talking last time about how the speech of Jesus is very motivating. Jesus gives this famous speech where he says, consider the lilies of the fields, they do not toil, they do not weave. Consider the birds, the ravens of the air, they do not sow or reap, and God keeps them, and all that. And I told you that essentially, scientifically, engineeringly speaking, that is not true as such. It's not true in a direct way. How many animals have become extinct? Let's not talk about the famous dinosaurs, but uh, even the famous dodo of Madagascar or of southern Africa. Thousands, tens of thousands of species getting extinct. How many people have seen graveyards of animals, a drought in some place, on some continent, in America, in Africa, in some place, and then 10,000 animals being dead of thirst, of hunger, of other things. So what are you trying to say that God is keeping the animals? That look at the raven, God feeds them, and you are even more valuable than them. God feeds them, and sometimes God does not feed them. And as about human beings, I already said it in the last week. Human beings today, in the 21st century, it was confirmed by students watching that satsang last week, human beings die, approximately 30,000 of them, every day. Much, much more than the coronavirus or other things like that. Coronavirus has killed 90,000 people in 90 days, 1,000 per day. But hunger is killing 30,000 people every day. And nobody gets hysterical and nobody does anything about it because basically the so-called civilized people, they don't feel that they are threatened or the people in their entourage, in their milieu. And thus, I explained last week that Jesus has something else in mind. Jesus is not giving fake news. Jesus is not giving fake indication. Jesus is not lying to people and just telling them a little white lie there. And Jesus is not giving to people fake hopes. Oh, God will take care of you, you just surrender. That is true. That's why 
the message which Jesus gives refers to a special kind of relationship that the human being can develop with God. It's something which is assumed consciously. You own it. You take a decision. It's a conscious decision. It is an act of surrender. And that is on a much higher level of existence. It's exactly like you would say that people who are very much in Svadhisthana Chakra, they don't have much of an ego. That's classical. I'm simplifying, but it's the way we explain it to the beginners in the yoga courses. That the ego is very much a psychological characteristic of Manipura Chakra. And if you are very Svadhisthanistic, then you seem not to have an ego. Somebody who is not at all educated in spirituality may consider that the person on Svadhisthana Chakra is a sort of a saint because that person is a non-egoistical character. But that person is below the level of the ego. That person does not even have an ego. So that person is in a formidable state of inferiority. The people that may have died in living a completely unconscious life, those people are below the level of the person who has an ego and they strive. They fight for their life. They fight for their food. They fight for their survival. They work for their daily bread. They sweat their brow for their daily bread. But Jesus is talking about rising above, like you have the power to compete, you have the power to produce food and survival for yourself, and then you move to a higher level, and there you live with God, by God, through the grace of God. So Jesus refers to something else, don't take it literally. He continues with this parable by saying, Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Two beautiful statements are in this sentence. First of all, Jesus considers the beauty of the nature as illustrated in a lily, in a flower in the fields as greater than all the clothing and decoration of King Solomon. King Solomon was very wealthy. He is famous in Judaism because he built the temple of Solomon, the greatest of the traditional Jewish temples, the great temple of Jerusalem, which, after Jesus' years, decades later, was raised down by the Romans as Jesus has prophet, had prophesied already. And Solomon, being such a rich, wealthy king, of course he was wealthy for himself as well. He had royal paraphernalia. He was dressed as a king, living as a king, decorated as a king. And Jesus says, all that artificial beauty, 
you cannot compare it to the beauty of nature. This is what enlightened beings see. That's why either you are talking about Japanese calligraphy and Ikebana, or you are talking about Greek artistic mysticism with inspiring muses and sculpture of the godly forms, or you are talking about the Byzantine icons and the mystical art of the icon makers of the medieval times, and others like them, we are talking about the fact that all the people who studied beauty, aesthetics, they realized that human beings can conceive, of course, music and other such things, paintings, sculpture, but nothing is as beautiful as what the hand of God does. Therefore, nature is the most perfect and sublime form of art. When Jesus wants to say that King Solomon was not decorated well enough, he compares him to the lilies, to the flowers in the fields. And he says those flowers have a delicate harmony, a beauty which is greater than that of King Solomon. It shows indeed that Jesus is living in the supreme reality, sees things with the eyes of God and can truly evaluate the values and the truth. And this Jesus tells us things which seem to be simple, like the lilies of the fields, some flowers which do not toil, they do not make any effort. He says they do not labor or spin to dress themselves, to spend things. Nevertheless, spend money, spend effort. Nevertheless, the lilies in the fields, they are more beautiful in the eyes of God than Solomon clothed up in his glory as a king. And that's why he simply is trying to put things into perspective again, like let the human being trust in God, rely on God, surrender to God. And he gives the same argument, but this time not for food, like he gave with the ravens last week, but as he gives for the beauty of the clothing, for decoration... He says, if that is how God closes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? There is a beautiful scene of this when Francis of Assisi gives up all his wealth, his name, his family, his obligations to his father and everything, and he remains naked in the plaza of Assisi in front of the church and then due to the necessity because normal people consider this to be a little bit too much to see this young man naked right there in front of the whole population of the city then the bishop is clothing him with his mantle and of course the bishop is dressed luxuriously he is dressed uh, richly, and funny enough, that cloth, that piece of cloth, that mantle, goes on the shoulders of Francis. Francis 
is clothed by God. He did not work for that cloth. He did not toil. And mysteriously, when he surrenders and stands naked, he lost everything. He owns nothing. Then the man of God is compelled, but still is compelled to give him rich clothes with embroidered with gold and with all sorts of religious decorations. So Francis is suddenly dressed like an angel. He's dressed like a supernatural creature, although he is a beggar who a second before was naked. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about rising above this necessity of the ego to struggle, 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 and surrendering to the divine consciousness. So he says, if this is how God clothes the grass of the field, because ultimately the lilies, they are very beautiful when they are blossomed and when they are in bloom as flowers, but ultimately it's just some plant. It's just some grass on the field. It's some green plant there in the fields. And in the climate of Israel of those days, like today, there is dry climate for many months where everything withers. And there are a couple of months where it's raining and the fields are becoming green. So something which is alive and green and blossomed today, six months from now, it is dead. It is withered. So Jesus says, think, God is putting such beauty, such creativity in a simple piece of grass, which today it's there, tomorrow it's not there. And yet every year, since millions and millions of years, the same creativity is put there tirelessly, forever. And if God puts so much care in a simple lily, then he says, How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So, in this parable, Jesus is requiring that people should rise above the inertia, above the stress, the struggle for survival, me, 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 I have to put food on my table, just by surrendering and seeing what is going to happen. That lesson had been given by Moses in an older time. People were different. That was a thousand years ago before Jesus, when Moses took the Jewish population out of Egypt, where they had jobs, food, houses, a living. It was a miserable living, but it was still a living. And these people gained their freedom, but the only place where they can live is in the peninsula which is called Sinai today. And Sinai is pretty much a desert place, a piece of desert. Thousands of Israeli people, or more than thousands, maybe tens of thousands, living in the desert, they cannot do agriculture, they cannot do farming, they don't have vegetables, there are no plantations, there are no... I don't know, banana groves where they can go and pick up bananas every day. And and therefore, Moses is showing them this miracle first, that if they believe in God, and if they take their freedom, and if they surrender to God, God will produce even a visible miracle. 
As most of you know, the divine consciousness avoids producing visible miracles, especially in Kali Yuga, because it contradicts the laws of knowledge. It contradicts the wall of silence. It forces too much people's faith and people's karma. And that's why very seldom we have cases like that of Jesus and others where miracles are happening visibly and overwhelmingly and abundantly. Well, with the Israelis in the desert of Sinai, not for 40 days, for 40 years, this miracle was happening every morning. Every day and every morning, these people were receiving manna from heaven, which was a white crystalline substance, like the result of dew and frost. Although there was not always freezing temperatures, far from that. And in the, moment, in the morning, on the rocks, around the encampment of the Jews, on all the rocks, there was a white deposit a crystallization of something. And that crystallization, today we are talking about nutrition. What if you don't have the B12 vitamin in your diet? What if you are missing some magnesium? What if you don't have enough calcium? And miraculously, the Jews in that community ate this, they scraped this white powder off the rocks and they swallowed it. And it was nutritionally, complete. They survived. They did not develop rickety and uh, I don't know what other, uh, you know, scorbut, uh, scurvy uh, and other things like this. Although they are eating something very arguable. And that something had a divine origin as far as we are given to understand because only those who saw it and touched it they know for sure. And we are being told that it was a, pro, a divine gift. And people lived not one generation. Try to think. One generation was changing every 15, 20 years. And if the two or three generations survived in the desert by eating the manna from the rocks. So Jesus is not inventing something. It had happened. Jesus is reminding to them, your ancestors a thousand years ago, they escaped from the slavery at the Passover time when they crossed the Red Sea and then they lived in the Sinai Desert 40 years surrendering to God and waiting, awaiting for the promised land. That's why he comes with this parable. This parable, if you want to dissect it in an engineering way, it's not accurate scientifically. You cannot say that all the animals survive through the mercy of God, but then many disappear and die. Even whole species. You say, well, human beings destroy animals. It's not true. There are many species of animals which disappeared without the contribution of the human beings. Thus, there are laws of the species of nature, of life on this planet, which do not depend on the human beings and which are having higher reasons. And that's why Jesus is not talking about that. Jesus is aware that human beings can die of starvation. 
But he says, none of the people who consciously surrenders to God, like Moses did a thousand years ago of him, before him, none of those will be ignored by God. It's not that the others are ignored by God, but the others have a level of consciousness, a karma, a dharma, an integration in this life that some of them will die of starvation. As you can see, we are in the 21st century and we make fuss with the corona and still 30,000 people die every day and nobody makes any fuss. Very little fuss. If I don't tell you insistingly, you don't even know it's happening and even then you doubt it. And thus, here Jesus is talking about something else. So he says... You know, he says, if God is making flowers beautiful, then why do you worry that, oh, I need to make money to be properly dressed and all that? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. This thing with eating and drinking is one of the main instincts of the human being. It's one of the main Fears. Look at animals. Whoever lives with animals knows that animals most of the time are obsessed with eating, 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 eating. For animals, the fact that they are being fed and fed, that's the most important event of their life. Day after day, they don't get bored about that. That's the most important event. So this is such a powerful instinct. It's like the instinct of survival and conservation. And Jesus is telling you, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. It's almost impossible. We have all been there, if not in this lifetime, then in previous lives. We've all hungered and thirsted We've all had the fear of tomorrow and it's one of the deepest things. Our primitive brain, our reptilian brain is profiled on this, that we are afraid and we are desperate for our food and drinking and all that. Therefore, the requirement of Jesus, which is logically in the divine logics, it's perfectly right. Nevertheless, this advice of Jesus is so difficult, so terribly difficult. Because it's like, who, how many people have I known in my own life, I included, who are not putting their mind and heart in what they are going to eat or drink tomorrow or this very day. How many people are so detached from their physical body, so much living in the Spirit of God, that they don't care about that? Yes, John the Baptist, his cousin, he was such a person. John the Baptist was living in the desert, and when he's introduced in the Bible... They say that he was eating wild honey and grasshoppers. Wild honey is 
not easy to procure because the bees are defending it very jealously, wild bees. And to eat grasshoppers, it's something which we Europeans don't even consider as a good joke. Yes, in Asia, in Africa, maybe some people reduced to total starvation, they would consider even eating that. But Jesus, talking from the standpoint of that culture, doesn't consider that. So look at John the Baptist. He was living alone in the desert, and he ate what the desert gave to him. Milarepa, he was living somewhere four or 5,000 meters high up in the Himalayas. He was eating, most of the time, stinging nettles. Stinging nettles. That was a, a family of stinging nettles. A form of stinging nettles, some sort of grass. Imagine how pathetic is the grass which grows in a dry mountain soil, rocky soil at 4,000 meters high, where the slightest cloud which comes produces temperature sub-zero and things like that. How poor the vegetation is. And in that poor vegetation, Milarepa was eating a few threads that he could find every day of that. So he was not afraid of what he will eat tomorrow. He had surrendered completely. The list could continue. A Christian female saint, Mary of Egypt, she went into the desert and she lost her clothes, everything. She lived 30 years in the desert, living naked in the desert and eating a little piece. What, what green plants, what can you find to eat in the desert? And she survived and she became one of the great female saints of early Christianity. So it's very difficult what Jesus says here for us who are pampered and spoiled and lived in the 20th and 21st century kind of luxury is almost inconceivable that we give up. That's why sometimes it's very educational. If you fast, if you fast for 10 days, and then it's a little bit, it's not for the rest of your life, but at least it's a way of testing this, how it is to let go of this obsession. He says, do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Do not worry about it. His problem is not only that you do it. His problem is that you set your heart on it, that you are obsessed with it, that you live as a slave of your reptilian brain. All your life is subordinated to this incredible need for you to eat and to survive, therefore to be animalistic, to be controlled by your primitive brain and by your animal nature. And somebody who wants to become like Milarepa or like Mary of Egypt or like John the Baptist, they have to rise above this. And it's very difficult in the so-called civilized society of today to rise above this. Consider many methods from yoga and from alternative medicine about how to deal with it. So he says, do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things. 
and your father knows that you need them. See, the Jews in those days, and some of them still today, they had a complex of superiority, that they were the only monotheistic religion in the Western Hemisphere, in the Western part, in the Indo-European part, and they were very proud of it. Moses and others, they told them clearly to separate from all the other nations called Gentiles, the different tribes which were there, all the cultures, Egyptians, Babylonians, Phoenicians, and others and others, because none of them had a monotheistic religion. None of them believed in one God. Even the Greeks who were very advanced philosophically, and the Roman Empire, which was the biggest military power and administrative power of that time, of that part of the earth, even these ones, they were not monotheistic. They were polytheistic cultures. And therefore, the Jewish prophets, who could see the spiritual reality of things, they were telling repeatedly to the Jews, Jewish people, brother Jews, you don't realize what gift God has given to you. You don't realize how special you have been made because you have been given this monotheistic view of the world. It's like a veil has been taken off your brains and you can see they could not see it very well, right? Because as soon as Moses crossed them over the Red Sea and he went on Mount Sinai to meet with God and to bring the tablets of the law, 40 days passed. And in those 40 days where Moses was doing his tapas, the Jews down, they built a golden calf and they were worshipping. They were worshipping uh, an idol, a demon, a deity which looked like a calf, like a little ox, and was made from precious metals, most of it gold. Therefore, even the Jews, after they had witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle with Moses, and they were, anytime, just being left alone for 40 days, and they were ready to worship idols, and deities, that means to fall from the grace of monotheism. And that's why, knowing this danger, many of the Jewish prophets, they advise the Jews, don't mingle with anybody. Don't be with anybody. Because they are going to corrupt you into easier things. Oh, if God is not answering your prayer... I know a mantra of a deity or of a spirit. I know a pantacle. I know a magic ritual. You can worship the golden calf and he will give you food and comfort. Like instead of going to the higher end of your religion in getting putting up with lower levels of that religion. So the Jews at that time in the Mediterranean environment, they were blessed. They were having something which even the Romans and the Greeks were not having. And of course, Jesus knows this and upholds it 
and takes it to the next level, tries to move it to Anahata, which he all his life did. But he said, for the pagan world runs after all such things. Which such things? To put your heart in what you are going to eat. He says, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. The pagan world runs after all such things. So Jesus considers it as a sign of inferiority. When there is a coronavirus and people go to a supermarket and they start fighting for sardine tins and for toilet paper, this is exactly like he says, the pagan world. We are pagans from the standpoint of Jesus. We are pagans because we, our heart is set on what we will eat and drink. And Jesus says, that's what the pagans do. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, because their religions are inferior religions, which somehow nourish or condone this inferior animal nature, this inferior animal behavior. But he says, we, the Jews, and I, Jesus, being sent from heaven to you, we don't want to be like this. We want to be superior. Yes, you take the food and the drink from us, and we are still with God. We don't lose our faith. We don't lose our spirit. The world is not only made out of what we eat and what we drink. Otherwise, Maya can hypnotize us and blackmail us so easily. So easily. It's kindergarten. It's childish. And on the other hand, remember that when Jesus himself was fasting for 40 days, after he got this detachment from food and drink, then he was tempted by the devil. The last episode of that trial was the fact that Jesus proved himself to be above food and drink. No? Somebody fasting for 40 days can legitimately be afraid that they risk their lives, that they could be dead. Today, medical science is assuring us that that's not the case. But in those days, they didn't have this solid scientific research and this solid medical science. And therefore, anybody thought you are not eating a week or two or three, you are dead because cases had been seen. And thus, Jesus did himself this. It is a symbol to fast for a long time. To simply say, I'm in the hands of God, I surrender, I don't depend on food and drink. If God wants me dead, let him strike me dead right now. I am in the hands of God. So Jesus considers this obsession as pagan. He puts them down. He says, you consider yourself Jews and superior, chosen. Well, don't care about food and drink and so on. It's the pagan world which has such ideals. They cannot get out of their animalistic and physical nature. And your father knows that you need them. Like, if you truly need food and drink, won't God give it to you one way or another? If you live with God, 
Thus, that's very important because it's a matter of faith. Do you need to shout to God, God, give me food. But he hears if you whisper. He hears if you say it in your head. That's why it's all a matter of faith. Like, do you truly believe that you live in a conscious universe? Or are you like the psychopathic, the the neurotic Nietzsche, who in his madness said a sad truth, that God is dead. God is not dead, definitely not for Jesus. No, and he says, God should not be dead for you. But if you are a mental case, a nutcase like Nietzsche and others, then you start talking nonsense that because God is not fulfilling some of your whims, God must be dead. And then people say, yeah, yeah, sure. Pray to Allah, but tie your camel to a post. Jesus wants that people should have the capacity to surrender. And then you understand that you should not ask God to perform miracles non-stop. Okay, even with the Jews, he did it for 40 years in the desert. And then when they found the promised land, then they started doing farming. Then they went back to toiling and agriculture. So God was not willing to say, okay, for the next 40,000 years, the Israelis will have food coming from heaven. You don't need to do anything. No. That's a miracle which violates the laws of nature. And it violates the laws of karma because people will see it and they will film it and they will put it on internet and everybody will say, aha, so God exists. Look, every morning these people get some food. But people are not allowed to have that faith as a gift like this. They have to earn it. They have to create it. And therefore, these miracles are not there. The fact that you don't get fed for a while and that you become indifferent doesn't mean that you are not toiling or working or earning money or doing things in your life. So he says, your father knows that you need the essentials of life. Why don't you trust in that? Quietly, silently, like a child trusts confidently, completely. So, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Seek his kingdom. The human beings are the only ones that can become Buddhas on the face of this earth. We don't know if there existed other intelligent races. The mystery literature is full of speculations of if the people of Atlantis had pointed heads or, you know, and they genetically were different or others and others were there. There are many mysteries, but fact is that in the known history of this planet, whatever the wall of silence allows us to know about the history of this planet, the human beings are the only ones that developed a reflexive consciousness. Who am I? The awareness. 
the presence. Only human beings have it. Elephants have a brain bigger than the human beings. They don't have it. Tested psychologically in laboratories. Whales sometimes have brains bigger than the human beings. Some types of whales do, some are smaller. They have brains bigger than the human being. And they don't have self-awareness. Again, tested by animal psychologists in laboratories with a test of the mirror and a few other standard tests for showing how self-consciousness appears. Chimpanzees, baboons, gorillas, dolphins, they have brains comparable or some of them a little bit bigger than the human being, in the dolphins, I mean, and still they don't have self-awareness. So the human being, we can say, yeah, but there have been human beings like the Cro-Magnon race, which were, we found skeletons 25,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago, who had a brain of 2.250 liters, 2,200 cubic centimeters of brain, compared with the average man of today, who has 1,450 cubic centimeters. So there are skulls, there exist skulls of people that had a brain 50% bigger than our brain of today. We don't know exactly what they did, how their life was, if those were people who had states of samadhi, paranormal abilities, or other things. What we know, without speculating in this mystery industry or domain, subculture, is the fact that only human beings in the last 5,000 years Only human beings have become Buddhas. A human being can say, if life is full of pain, like Buddha did, then I can find a way out of pain. And develop a method, meditate, do headstands, pray, dance like a dervish, do whatever they choose to do, and find a way to go beyond pain a way to go to nirvana. Nirvana is not a natural thing. Nirvana is coming by a choice. That's why I get sometimes amused when people talk about the thing that, uh, oh, in your horoscope it says that you are going to be an enlightened being. It cannot, because the enlightenment is way beyond the planets. Even the gods who are the planets, remember Jupiter, Mars, Saturn, they are gods, deities, devas. Even the gods are not enlightened. So how can the gods who are not enlightened predict through the movement of their celestial respective bodies the fact that you will be enlightened? Nirvana is something which is beyond karma. It's not conditioned by karma. And because of that, you cannot see it in a horoscope. You cannot see it by astrology. The people who give such information are ignorant and they talk nonsense. It's not in the stars. It's not in the planets. And therefore, Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God. Seeking the kingdom of God is the result of consciousness. My life would normally be so and so. I am a person who is a Saturnian, Mercurian, Martian, Venusian. And I choose to not do those things. And I choose to close my eyes 
and go in my crown chakra like Buddha did. And after six years of daily practice, I could be there. I could reach that. This is why seeking for the kingdom of heaven, seeking for nirvana, is the one thing which is divine and non-animalistic. All the other things are instincts and things coming from our primitive brain. Even when we think that some behavior, some solution to some challenge was brilliant, unexpected, oh my God, divine and so on, it's not. It's most of the time your primitive brain reacting. It's that gut feeling or whatever you choose to call it. But there is something much higher than that and that is the intervention of your own consciousness. Jesus is talking here about living a conscious life. Consciously surrender to God about your food and drink. Consciously surrender to God about your clothing and outer conditions. Consciously surrender to God about all those primitive things. All the other needs which ascetics and hermits they have confronted the need for sex, the need for socializing, the need for speaking, the need for, you know, all the needs of the human beings, they can be surpassed when they are consecrated to God, when they are sacrificed to God, for God. And this is what Jesus says. The, the pagans, the Gentiles, they don't have a concept of God. And for them, life is what the gods, what the deities bring around, the planets. It's samsara. There is no way out of samsara with Jupiter and Saturn and Mars and Mercury. They are part of samsara. They cannot go out of samsara themselves and they cannot make you go out of samsara. It's a closed system. It's a bubble. They live in a bubble and we live with them in that bubble. And then there is a force which is coming from above, from beyond the bubble, which is God, which is Jesus, which is nirvana, and that is the way of transcending. Patanjali says if you do a lot of yoga, you could become a god, a deity. Not the god, but you could become a deity. And Patanjali says it's one of the biggest mistakes. Because of course, it gives you great power and a glorious existential status. But there is something which is much higher than the existence of the gods. The gods are prisoners of their own statute, of their own status, of their own evolution in space and time. They are limited still. Much bigger than us. Much, much bigger than simple human beings. But still not enlightened. Like Buddha is a million gazillion times bigger than Jupiter or Mars or Venus. An enlightened being has an existential status which is inconceivably higher. That's why when Ramakrishna became enlightened, he went beyond Kali. He split Kali in his mind and he went beyond her. And then as Romain Roland said in his biography then Ramakrishna was not the worshipper of Kali. From that moment, he became the worshipped of Kali. 
Because as soon as he reached Brahman, Ramakrishna had a level of consciousness which was higher than the level of consciousness of Kali. He still surrendered to her all his life. He prayed to her. He asked for favors. Even when he was sick with cancer, he was asking her if she will let him eat or something. So it's not that he played smart. Haha, now I'm bigger than you. Only in level of consciousness, he was beyond. Of course, he was still surrendering because he considered Kali one of divine forces condoned by God. Put there by God with a purpose. And then he was okay. But his level of consciousness was higher. That's why Jesus says, these religions, it's what we teach in the metaphysical workshop, that there are forms of spirituality which are not transcendental. They do not lead to be purusha. They do not lead beyond samsara. They do not lead to nirvana. Even the system of existence of the pagans, of the Gentiles, the Greeks and the Romans and many others, it was not with God. That's why, for example, a great master like Socrates, from the Greek culture, they are not considered to be enlightened masters because they were not worshipping the one God. They had not discovered that one. They were still in the world of gods. You can say that Socrates had the consciousness of a pure God, deity. He had the consciousness of a divine nature, sattvic. But God is beyond sattva, rajas, and tamas. God is beyond the three gunas. Nirvana is something which is not even covered by the gunas or anything from prakriti. It's not something of prakriti. And that's why Jesus is coming always with this transcendental message. So he says, yeah, the Gentiles have an inferior religion. And because of this, they are obsessed by the world. The world, the world, this including food, clothes, and so on. But seek for the kingdom of heaven, which means seek for nirvana, seek for liberation, Seek for the presence of God. My first spiritual teacher was very clear on this. He said, if the kingdom of heaven is inside you, as it is said somewhere here by Jesus himself, then is God the king present in his own kingdom or not? That means you are seeking for the divinity. You are seeking for the God who is in you. The kingdom of heaven is a metaphor. It's like a place. That place is nirvana. That place is a a dwelling of it, a manifestation of it, is Shambhala. So Jesus says, seek for the kingdom of heaven. Because that's what the pagans are not seeking for. Remember, even Socrates and great spirits, they were not seeking for nirvana. Because they were not informed that nirvana exists. That's the problem. It's an opening. Opening the door of the spirit and telling you, you can go for that if you want. And some men and some women want. And those are the people 
who have the aspiration for the infinite. So he says, seek his kingdom. Seek the kingdom of God. This is what makes you separate from all the animals, even those that have a bigger brain than you. Seek for the kingdom of God. And these things, these things, you know, food and clothing and so on, will be given to you as well. Because in the moment when you go into that category, you are precious. There are, I don't know, I take a number out of the top of my head, a hundred billion or a hundred trillion living beings on this planet. Cockroaches, fishes in the water, bacteria, you know. There are hundreds of gazillions of living beings on the face of this earth alone. Out of them, there are only seven billion which are humans. And those humans are the only ones who potentially can reach nirvana. That's why those seven billion, they are more valuable than any of the others. Nature has worked hard to build a pyramid and to put the human being on top of that pyramid. The purpose being the opening of Sahasrara, the kingdom of heaven, nirvana, enlightenment. That's why when nature thinks, should a monkey die or a human being die, of course the hippies and all these ecologistic people and all these uh, nature freaks, they will say, oh, it's here. the human beings are worse than the monkeys nowadays. The monkey is, it's not true. This is just absurd nonsense. It's a sort of uh, ecological anarchism in which some people want to prove at all costs that human beings are shit and that the animals are... In the eyes of God, if you ask Jesus, a human being is always more valuable than any animal on the face of this earth. Even if you are talking about the last surviving panda and should a beggar in the slums of Calcutta, die, or should that last panda bear die? The consciousness of God says, let the panda bear die. Human beings are hallowed. Human beings are special. They are in a category of their own. And thus, Jesus simply puts down all this inferiority, and he says, seek the kingdom of God. That's what makes you human. You're going to say, but people don't seek the kingdom of God. Yes, and that's a tragedy. But remember, at least some people seek for the kingdom of God. When the angels of God met with the prophet Abraham, and they told him that they go to the perverted cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to find if really those people were so perverted as the news were coming, Abraham was bargaining with God. And he said, but what if you can, it's not black and white. There will be a city full of shit and then there will be 50 good people in it. And those 50 people are with God. They are real spiritual seekers. It is said that in Sodom and Gomorrah they, there lived approximately half of a million people. Even if there were 50,000 people. Out of 50,000 people there could be 50, right? And the angel of God, there are two angels, 
one of the angels of God tells to Abraham, like Abraham was the patriarch of the Jewish nation at that time. So he makes like a vow, like a promise. You are the only monotheistic people. We are talking to you. And uh, you have the honor of talking to the representatives of God. And the angel of God tells him with the voice of God, like God talks through him. And he says, we really tell you that if there are 50 people in Sodom and Gomorrah who are still righteous, that means looking for God, living a conscious life, we will spare the city for them. There are 50,000 perverts there who deserve to die because they are digging their own spiritual grave. They are digging their own way to hell by living the lives which they live. So if we kill them, we stop them from going into a deeper hell. And the angel says, if there are 50 right people, for those 50 right people will keep 50,000 rotten ones. What a balance. And then Abraham pushes the envelope and says, what if there are only 45? He's a real Jew. He bargains with God. No, And he says, what if there are 45? And the angel acquiesces and he says, even if there are 45, we'll still spare the city. And Abraham bargains with God down to five. Down to five. And in the end, the angel tells him, if we find five good people in Sodom, we will spare the rest of the city because of those five people. When 250,000 people died in a tsunami, why weren't they spared? Because those five people were not there. That's the sad truth of it which people refuse to see. Because in the world of God, there is a value. And that value is very special. And then the angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were almost raped in their anus. And the angels ran away in horror, and they found just one man with his family, but they counted only the men, the heads of the family, and that man was Lot. And they told him, it's only one. And we cannot spare the city for one. It's too little. So they told him, Lot, pick up your family, run into the hills, don't look back. Because what's coming is like you've never seen. And Lot was saved and the cities were burned down. And thus, I'm telling you this to understand that what Jesus says is of great importance. He says human beings are special. They are important. Seek for the kingdom of God. Don't focus your life on food and drink and clothes and these kinds of things. All those things will be given to you as well. As well, like was Jesus not having clothes? Was Jesus not having food? Except at the time when he decided to fast? Jesus, we are never mentioned in the, his history that Jesus, Jesus went hungry and his clothes were broken. He always seemed to live in some sort of state of grace where the necessary things of life were given to him somehow. So all the things on the earth, they can be given as a bonus if the spiritual thing is, first of all, there. 
And he talks sweetly to them further. He says, do not be afraid, little flock. Wonderful translation in English. I don't know what the original words were, but what sweet words they put in the mouth of Jesus. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Like it's an act of grace. Remember that all the animals have been created and then in the last day of the creation, man has been created. Or in the last but one day of the creation, in the sixth day, man was created. And man was given the spirit of God, which animals have not been given. It says God put the breath, the Holy Spirit, in his nostrils. And this is how Adam became alive. In the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo saw this as that famous gesture where God is touching the finger of Adam, who is a piece of clay, an animal with a reptilian brain, and that's all. And then God gives him the Holy Spirit, which is the one which gives consciousness and the possibility of nirvana. And in this way, God creates one special creature, which is the one that can go to God. The others cannot. They are unconsciously there. They live their animal life. There is one which is on top of that pyramid. And we completely debase this existential condition by living unconsciously, indifferently, by living like animals. We ignore this gift which God has given, that we have consciousness and we have to live according to this consciousness, which is making ourselves to ask questions, to say, who am I? Why am I here? What should I do with my life? And all those great things that you know. And thus, he says, do not be afraid for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Like it's an act of grace. God could have easily created a planet only with animals. And we can suspect that there was a time a billion years ago or whenever you want to put it, when this planet had only simple animal life on it. And at some point, the natural development, the DNA, the evolution of the species comes to the point where God says, now on top of the gorillas and chimpanzees and baboons, I can have something better. I can have the next step. And that next step is not just an improved monkey. There is like a red line between monkeys and all the others and the human being. It's a new category. It's a category that can go to God. It's the category which can get enlightened. And that's why Jesus says beautifully here, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The old Jews thought that God did things only when he was pleased, like Abraham was lighting some incense and God sniffed it. And he said, oh, great smell. Abraham, I have a gift for you. No, like you have to please God. And when God is pleased, suddenly he's in a good mood and he can give a gift. And of course, the gifts of God are immeasurable, inconceivable, anything. 
can be there. No? And here he says, at some point in history, which we are not going to debate right now, God has been pleased enough to create you, humans. And among humans, he has given to you, the Jews, the awareness of the fact that God exists. He made you capable to see him. The Greeks and the Romans cannot see him. They think that the highest force in the universe is Jupiter. And Jupiter is a small baby compared to God. Jupiter is mortal and finite compared to God. And who knows that there is a God of Jupiter? That there is the God of the gods, Deva Deva, which is the epithet of Shiva in India. In the area of Jesus, only the Jews did. So they have been turned into human beings and they had been given the theology, the knowledge, which allowed them to say, wait. And there were prophets, Elijah and John the Baptist and so many other prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah and so many prophets. No, they have been there for that was an active spirituality and people not only that they were human beings, but they were human beings that had the door open. Of course, you're going to say, but 99.9% of the population were still egoistic, ignorant people running for food and behaving like animals. Yes, humanity has a very small yield. But if you take a tree, a rose tree, and you say this rose tree produces incredibly beautiful roses, how much of the tree are the roses themselves? Not even 1%. 99.9% of that tree is the bark, the trunk, the roots, the leaves, the branches. And then there is something very fluffy and beautiful, which is called the rose flower, which comes now, stays for one week, then it goes. Those rose flowers were the prophets. That was John the Baptist. They were the flowers of the tree of Judaism. And in that tree, 99.9% were not flowers. Like in any monotheistic society of today. They were not flowers. And thus, Jesus says, you don't know how much grace there has been given to make you into human beings who can say, wait a second, who am I? Where am I? What's happening? And not only to be conscious, because Socrates was conscious, not only to be conscious, but to be given the path. For example, the Tibetan Buddhists, when they say, which are the ten conditions for becoming enlightened? The first condition is that on the planet where you are born, there should have been a Buddha born before you who had preached the doctrine. Because if Buddha was not born and you don't know that there exists something called nirvana, and which is the way to that nirvana, then you don't even seek for it. That revelation, the fact that the Buddha has opened the path, it's a grace. 
That's why Buddha, although he is not a divine uh, incarnation or something, he is considered the man of grace. The birth of Buddha is a great grace and the Buddhists are worshipping the moments of the life of Buddha. They celebrate because the fact that Buddha found a way is giving paradise to so many people for so many generations after Buddha has lived his physical life. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. You are dear to God. God has found it fit, has been pleased to give you the kingdom, which means to to give you the consciousness, which everybody has. But it's not only the consciousness of being a human being. You need to be given the possibility to open that door. And at that time, in that geographical area, only the Jews were having that possibility. Amazing. Amazing grace. And Jesus is, of course, going like, you know, it's like a vaccination. He's going in the overdrive. Like he's so exasperated by this madness and stupidity of people that he goes like, let's, let's have the antidote to this animalistic behavior. He told them, don't be afraid, don't put your heart on what you need to worry about what you will eat or drink, you know. The pagans think that they can solve this thing out. And he says, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. An Arabian proverb says, if you want to trace your path straight, attach your chariot to a star, like the sailors do, no? The north star will not betray you. It's always north in the northern hemisphere, visible and there. You know, you, you, you attach your chariot to a star, the star is so far, far, far away, even the planets are moving and changing their position relative to each other. But the stars don't. Not in a thousand years. So little that the human eye cannot even perceive that. And therefore, the Arabian proverb is almost 100% correct astronomically. It says, if you want to trace your path straight, don't go by the shadow or by the moon or by... No, because all these things are moving all the time and then you will go like this. You will not find your straight path. Your straight path is when you choose a fulcrum, a referential, a ground zero, which is immutable. That immutable thing is God. That's the only fulcrum of the universe, the center, the immutable part, the unchangeable, eternal part of the universe. And Jesus says, focus on that. Take your reference in God. He becomes extreme, of course. He says, sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is your star? My star is my money, my house, my this, my that. What if somebody is threatening you to destroy it, to lose it? 
you become unstable, you become agitated, you may break the morals and ethics, you may do a lot of wrong things, and your mind and your heart is not with God, not in God, because (coughs) your essential things are somewhere else, and which is a terrible mistake. That's why Jesus says, set your priorities right. And he makes people sure. He says, look at me. I get food. I get clothes. And I don't need to worry about these things. He tells them like a promise. He says, seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom of God. And these things will be given to you as well. Like if you seek the kingdom of God, you will have food. You will have a roof. Look, in the Thai culture, the monks are begging their food and they receive donations and clothes. That's it. No, They don't have anything. And still they receive, they surrender in this formidable way. So, this teaching is fundamental. He simply says you put your hope into things which come and go. And depend on the karma. If you have money or if you don't have money, much money or not so much money, depends on your financial karma. If you have a house or if you have great clothes or if you have a flesh body which is really, really good, it also depends on your karma. And you are putting your emphasis on that and you are not putting, attaching your chariot to God. Go straight. First God. Then all the rest will come to you. Jesus is promising it. So, he is wonderful into this, that although his position seems to be extreme, he guarantees that when you have a conscious relationship with God, when you have a surrendering relationship with God, the protection is there. You live in a state of grace. He says, why do you worry, little flock? God has been so pleased with you already that he has given you the gift of consciousness of being human and he has given you the knowledge of monotheism which is opening for you the path to God himself, to the kingdom of heaven. And you are still fretting about if you'll have food or drink or something or good clothes. What is that? So, this teaching is a teaching of wonderful surrender and detachment. And he continues. He continues, but he changes slightly because it's still he's talking all the time about the fact that God is here, that God is alive, that because people are blinded by Maya, they don't see that there is God. And then they say, "Eh, until God is interfering for you, a lot of shitty things can happen. What a terrible belief that God can be careless not present, taken by surprise. For Jesus, God is 
110% present alive, spontaneous, there. And if things seem to not work for you, they don't work because God wants them to work in that defective way because there is a test for you to pass. There is something for you to learn. And therefore, when things are not working, you have to see yourself and you have to see what it is. So, he goes more into the part of watchfulness. Like, okay, I spoke about the greed for food, drink, money, survival, all these things. But it's all like you are all acting like God is not here. Like he's asleep or something. That's why that madman said, God is dead. He said, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Like men waiting for their master in return to return from a wedding banquet. You are a servant. Your master said, I'm going to a dinner. And now you say, oh, it's almost 10 o'clock. He should be returning. And then the servants are not sleeping. No, they are waiting. First, the master has to return. We have to make sure that he's okay, that everything is okay, that he goes inside, that he gets, uh, doesn't need anything, he doesn't want to eat or drink something. He's going to bed. He has everything arranged. Then we can lock the doors. We can switch off the lights. We can, you know, that's the culture of those days where people had servants or slaves or something. And it was the normal relationship. Jesus is not describing something unusual. He's using metaphors from their daily life. And he says, you are waiting for God. God to come in your heart. God to descend in your heart and mind and to give you a state of samadhi. God to be present in you and you to go like, wow, you know, like that's what you are waiting for. You are waiting for your nirvana. Buddha was waiting for it under that body tree. So he says, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. You don't say, oh, let's switch off the lamps. There's still one hour until he's coming. What if he didn't feel good and he's coming earlier? Can you guarantee he's not coming earlier? No. Then you have to be prepared at every moment. You cannot say, I will not learn the art of dying because I'm not going to die soon anyway. How do you know? How do you know? So Jesus simply says, that's the motto of the Boy Scouts, be prepared. You have to be prepared all the time because God is alive and here and you are not controlling the circumstances. So that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. In the old days, especially the households which were a bit isolated, they kept themselves locked like fortresses for fear of gangs, bands of robbers, thieves, and so on. And the cities, they had big gates which were closed at night and guarded by soldiers. And when people had separate households outside of the big cities, they were also like small fortresses. So normally, a house was closed. And then the master will return from the feast and says, Hello, I'm back home. What if everybody is sleeping? And the master is knocking for 20 minutes at the door. 
nobody is hearing it. Then the master will say, why am I paying you for? Why am I giving you food? Why am I clothing you? No, like isn't your duty to help me with some things? Am I not the master here? Therefore, am I not the first priority in your lives? Of course, independent people of today will say, no, you are not. Okay, then you are not my servant. Go away. No, you are my servant if I am your first priority. The same here with God. No, he says, so that if when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. No, that was a good servant. And you want to be a good servant of God so that God is pleased with you. He uses such simple analogies. No, it seems like, oh man, that sounds like a bit childish or brain dead. Don't forget, as above, so below. Things which we know are like many of the things which we don't know if you apply the laws of analogy. That's why Jesus gives so many metaphors from the daily life. He says exactly as in the daily life, and many others did. Ramakrishna, he says, if a child is crying, the mother drops everything in the kitchen and comes in a second like a hawk to see what's happening to her child. He says, when you pray to Kali, Kali will also come to you in a second, in a fraction of a second. Don't be afraid. No, pray. Don't be afraid that your cosmic mother cannot hear you or some nonsense like that. And thus, exactly as Ramakrishna compares your relationship with the goddess with a mother and her baby, here Jesus compares your relationship to God to the relationship of servants with their master. What people knew in their daily life. And he says it's something like that. That metaphor works pretty well. And they are good servants and bad servants. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. That's what God wants you, to be watching. Of course, that means awareness, a life of consciousness, a life of quest. I tell you the truth. So now Jesus goes in his emphatic mode. Truly, 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 I tell you. I tell you in the old texts, it's like Jesus repeats three times the word, truly, 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 I tell you. In this modern translation which I use for you, it's simply said, I, I will, I tell you the truth. But if Jesus says, people, I've walked on water, I've raised dead, I've healed lepers and blind. And still you don't believe me often. I'm telling you and you're like, uh, well, I don't know, uh, maybe, you know. And then sometimes Jesus himself is going strong. He says, truly, I tell you. Like, pay attention. Truly, you know, don't think I'm bullshitting you in any way. Either Jesus is a liar and a psychopath, no, or if he is who he says he is, then he comes and insists and he says, I truly, I will tell, I'll tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. In those days, people, when they had banquets, they were reclining. They were not sitting in front of a table 
simply. The comfortable position for a banquet was that people were reclining. You can see that in the movies about the Romans, the Roman parties. They had a special position. They were reclining, especially on the left side, so that the stomach should be arched like this, and the food should go well into the stomach. So they were eating while lying on their left elbow. And he says, God, the master, being pleased with the servants, like, oh my God, you are so loyal, you are so devoted. God will dress himself to serve, like Jesus is dressed to serve. He's dressed as a human being, and he's prepared to serve everybody by even giving his life. So God will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, like, please, now it's my turn. I'm so appreciative for you. I'm so much loving you. That please lie down and I will serve you. We'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. Jesus becomes your waiter. God becomes your waiter. Peter was so ashamed when Jesus wanted to wash his feet. And Jesus told him clearly, if I don't wash your feet... You don't reach the kingdom of heaven. Then Peter had to say, okay, wash my feet, you know, because I want the kingdom of heaven. But it's like, it's really awkward. It's really unbelievable. So God himself wants to serve you, wants to see you blossom. He wants to see you reach the kingdom of heaven because that's the meaning of life on earth. That's the meaning of life, the greater, the ultimate meaning that the tree of life should blossom and produce flowers. And the prophets and the saints are exactly those flowers. So Jesus says, be nice, be there, and God will serve you. God is so devoted to you, he will serve you. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. The night had watches. I don't know if there were one, two, if there were three or four watches or five or whatever. So each watch was like two hours. First watch was, let's say, from seven o'clock after sunset to nine o'clock. The second watch was from nine to eleven. Or, yes, and the third watch was from eleven to one o'clock. So third watch of the night, second watch means late at night. The master has been at the party and he's staying bloody long at the party. And we've been waiting here and at 10 o'clock he had not been coming yet. And we are like, okay, maybe he sleeps there, maybe no. It's bullshit. We know he's going to come. And people say, yeah, but now we have to wait him until 12 o'clock, until... One o'clock in the night. Well, I'm sleepy. I'm tired. That's how you show your loyalty. That's how you show your devotion. So Jesus says it clearly. God can submit the human being to tests. And he says it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night, like really late. Really late when everybody is tired. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known 
at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house to be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come, he is the Son of Man, will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is very important because it shows that not even astrologically and not even clairvoyantly you cannot predict when enlightenment will happen. People could have said, Buddha is going to be a great child. This child has a great future. But they didn't know exactly what, because the stars cannot describe the kingdom of heaven, because the kingdom of heaven is above the planets and the stars. And they could not describe when it was going to happen. When will Buddha reach nirvana? Buddha will reach nirvana in the moment when the master came back to him. And that master has a policy. He says, you also must be ready because the son of man, Jesus, God, will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is magnificent. It's magnificent because you should not take God for granted. Basically, I'm going to stop here and go on the next week starting from here. This is the policy of watchfulness. You cannot afford to be spiritually negligent and say it doesn't matter. Only tomorrow when it is the equinox, that's the only time which matters. No. What if God is deciding to come to you tonight? Like that other parable which Jesus said with a guy who was uh, trying to, you know, build buildings and do things, you know. And God said, you fool. God is coming and saying, I want your life back tonight. Now, why tonight is the most teasing time of all? No, like exactly when you have plans. That's the wonderful Greek proverb which says, how do you make God laugh? And the answer is, you tell him your plans. When you have plans, God is going to make mashed potatoes out of your plans. Nothing is going to work as you have planned it, except if you are like Jesus. If you are with God, and you know it already, like you are part of it. But otherwise, you do not know. You have to surrender And if you surrender, there is only one condition. You have to be prepared all the time. What if I die and for three months I didn't practice the art of dying and my mind has become really dirty? And then death is finding you in a very bad time. And you say, shucks, you know, if I would have died two years ago, I was so near, I was so prepared. But it's like God is teasing me and didn't come when I was ready. And then when I am in a bad shape because I have a Saturn transit on me or something, I'm having a shitty time. And God, like a teaser, decides to come exactly then. And I am so annoyed. That's how it is. That's how it is. That's why the only solution is to be prepared all the time. That's why the spiritual practice cannot stop. That's why the aspiration cannot stop. You don't know if you'll die young or old. 
You don't know if you'll reach nirvana young or old. You have to be prepared all the time. And it's happening when it's happening and how the divine consciousness decides it to happen. But if you are not prepared all the time, then you incur the risk that you will be taken by surprise. And if you are taken by surprise, tough luck. There will be another chance in another life, in other circumstances, but you can miss some amazing opportunities. Remember that there were people who met with Jesus physically when he was on earth and they ignored him. They did not understand him. They did not follow him. And when they died and they saw whom they have been passing by and what could have happened if they paid attention, they were probably very frustrated. It's exactly the same thing here. There are opportunities that need to be seized when they need to be seized. This is the policy of watchfulness. Be prepared at all times. You cannot plan to trick God. Oh, I'm just going to be negligent for 30 years and then when I feel that the real big things are coming, then I'm strapping up and then I'm going to do some... No, it doesn't work that way. You cannot fool God. God can always fool you and God cannot fool one like John the Baptist who lives in the desert and says, make straight the ways of God. Be prepared. Prepare. He's coming tonight or tomorrow night or in a thousand nights or in a hundred thousand nights. It doesn't matter. He's coming. So be prepared whenever it's going to happen. This is a wonderful thing which shows why we never stop the spiritual practice, we never stop the aspiration, and even people who have reached nirvana and who have been great saints in their religions, they have stayed spiritual until they died. They couldn't say, oh, I saved my soul, now I can become a drunk and negligent. No, it doesn't work that way. You have to follow the spiritual flow all the time till the end. Remember that it is the end which decides what's going to happen. I told you that already in a previous discourse. With this, let us stop here tonight. Thank you all for following. And we will continue. For those of you who celebrate Easter this Sunday, have a great Easter. And I hope that some of these satsangs have made you come closer to Jesus, understand him better, see how many connections there are between the pure spirit of Jesus and the doctrines of yoga, the methods and the disciplines of yoga. And in this way, may you have a good Easter. Those of you who celebrate Easter the next week in 10 days from now, the Orthodox Easter, we will probably have the possibility to meet again also next Thursday for the next satsang. With this, we have finished for tonight.